Welcome to The The Get Get Together. This is our show about how to bring communities to life that can bridge the gaps between us in a digital world. I'm your host, Bailey Richardson, and I'm a partner at People & Company and co-host of Get Together. My business partner and brother from another mother, Kevin Huynh, is out today, so it's just me, and that was my girlfriend on the microphone. Each episode, we interview everyday people who have built extraordinary communities about just how they did it. Today, I'm talking to Casper Turkile. If you're passionate about how the modern world builds meaningful communities, you likely know Casper's name. After an early career in grassroots climate organizing, Casper earned master's degrees in divinity and public policy from Harvard. While there, he started a reading community around the Harry Potter texts that has grown to chapters and thousands of participants, millions of downloads world round. He is co-author of the How We Gather Report, a cultural map of millennial communities, and is the author of a brand new book, The Power of Ritual, which is available for pre-order and will be published on June 23rd, 2020. Now, I love every chance I get to chat with Casper. His depth of historical practices and references are always a source of inspiration. Plus, he's joyful and kind and attentive. But I wanted to speak to him today on the podcast to go deep into two things he knows a lot about, ritual and the practice of community building. Traditionally, ritual was there to make the invisible visible. So you're kind of bringing to light something, you know, think about a transition, right? Like a graduation. Think about a wedding, right? Like I'm putting this wedding ring on my finger to represent my commitment to you, right? Like it's making this invisible promise we've made one another visible to the outside world. And also, frankly, to myself, right? Sometimes you need that reminder, like, oh, I made those vows, right? And I think one of the things that we've lost as, you know, more and more of us, especially younger generations, are less and less traditional religious, one of the things that we've lost is a shared language to describe these kind of things. I'll ask him about what he learned over the course of writing his book and then dig into how he sparked, stoked, and scaled Harry Potter and the sacred text community. One of the chapters of our book, Get Together, and key steps of our community building framework touches on rituals as a tool for ensuring growing groups stick together and keep their purpose at the forefront. Casper is one of the leading thinkers on this topic on the planet today. How can you bring Casper's insights on ritual to strengthen the communities in your life? Ready? Let's jump in. Casper, welcome to the podcast. And I want to extend a very big congratulations to you. Your new book, The Power of Ritual, is up for pre-order and is going to be out soon. So congratulations. (laughs) That's a huge feat. When I was reading your book, I got to read an advanced copy. I learned so much Mm. about you in the course of reading it. And you, I think a lot of folks that are listening to the podcast will know you from all the amazing work. Like you became a chaplain at Harvard. You've worked with On Being. You've done the How We Mm. Gather report. And of course, the Harry Potter community, which we'll talk about later. Where do you think your interest or your motivation to think about how people come together started? I ended up in divinity school as this guy, you know, a gay guy who grew up non-religious and was like very suspicious Mm. about religion, I think rightly. You know, kind of everyone in my life was like, you're going where? Divinity school? But now when I look back and I think about, you know, my family was Dutch, but I was born and raised in England. So we had an immigrant experience, although one of great privilege. So always there was a little bit of a kind of distinction between home and the outside world because we spoke Dutch at home and, and English outside. And then I went to 
Aqua Waldorf Steiner School. So I don't know if... You... Oh, yes, I've heard of those. But please yeah. explain them. They're remarkable. It's a very remarkable education system. And it's really focused on the holistic development of the child. So I didn't learn how to read and write until I was like nine. Wow. And it's really focused on creativity. And you, you know, you learn how to like garden. And there's all of these really mm. interesting rituals in the school system. So you start every morning by mm. like singing a song together. You dig a cow horn filled with cow dung the previous year's students like Whoa. put into the ground and you use it to like compost the you know the school garden um you give oh a my rose. gosh that's a very specific <laughs> oh. ritual yeah it's really about multi-sensory <laughs> engagement that's one of the tips i'm gonna give oh <laughs> <laughs> writing it down yeah. on my notepad right now but all of this is to say that like it was a really rich community a very very creative connected parents very involved in schooling and just a really wonderful community. And as a 10-year-old, I became really clear that I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to learn more about science and geography and history and, you know, dates about mm. Napoleon. And there's just a different sequencing within the Steiner system. So my parents miraculously listened to my 10-year-old desires and let me go. And I ended up in a very posh English prep school with, you know, the pink blazer and sports day. And, you know, parents who didn't have the latest model of car would wait until the other parents had to come and pick up their kid. You know, that's oh. Oh, yeah. And so I had this very... The ultimate yeah. in England at uh-huh. the pinnacle, what the rest of the world mimics. <laughs> exactly. Like having to play rugby as, you know, a tweeny little like homosexual child who hates Aww. every sport. At least the literature was great, right? I mean... <laughs> but, you know, I think for me, my my passion about bringing people together and my, and my belief that rituals are a way to do that um, really came from that very, very distinct difference between mm. this experience of my first school and my home life, which was warm and loving. And then this experience, which I was in, you know, from age 10 to 18 of of a boys' school and then later a boarding school, which was very individualistic, competitive. You know, it gave me gifts as well, right? Like, I don't know if I would have ended up at Harvard if I hadn't had that education. But nonetheless, it was was also really, really painful. As a little kid, it was just very, Mm. very difficult. And I felt very, very alone. And so one of the, one of the things that I talk about in the, uh, in the book is, you know, being in a boys boarding house with like 50 testosterone fueled teenagers, you know, you very quickly learn how to navigate to make it safe. So I realized like, oh, I I need to support a soccer team. And so I was like listening to an interview with the manager of Leeds United at the time who had this like sexy Irish accent. So I was like, great, I'll support Leeds. And like, I still support (laughs) Leeds. Like I go to games when I'm in the UK, like I'm still into it. But you kind of learn how to navigate. And I think that that just set me up to be very aware of how people are interacting with each other all the time, you know, noticing who's on the inside, who's on the outside, who's at the margins, who's at the center, and just becoming really passionate about always expanding that kind of circle of belonging. You've done so many things in your life connected to everything from really like environmental organizing in your early years to like, we've had this sort of a religiosity divinity school time. Then you went wider into communities of all stripes. And now you're writing a book on Mm. ritual, uh, this one piece of, you know, sort of human behavior that we do together. And I'm curious, why focus so deeply on ritual in particular? Why stick on that one sort of unit of behavior? The book is 
organized in four sections to think about connecting to self, connecting to others, connecting to the natural world, and then connecting to transcendence. And so it wasn't until pretty near the end of the book that I was like, wait, I'm describing for each of those kind of planes of connection, I'm describing practices, I'm describing communities that are mm. exciting to me, you know, whether they're in the fitness world or grief and loss contexts or creative spaces. I'm mapping these communities. I'm telling stories about my own life, about how people make those connections. And I was like, wait, each of these is a ritual. So it ended up being this really beautiful thread that tied these different levels of connection together. Because I think one of the mistakes that we sometimes have when we're talking about community and we're talking about gathering is we really think about it as just a social experience, right? It's just me and other people, like that's the plane. And for me, that experience of belonging, it's kind of multifaceted, right? It's also belonging to place and belonging to a people or belonging to a story over time. And it's a, a sense, of course, of belonging to yourself, to your own body and your own story. Mm. And so I wanted to kind of bring out how that real experience of deep connection demands for us to kind of engage all of those levels and that the things that we can do to do that, which really just help us remember the, the connection that's already true, are these different rituals and that they don't need to be super complicated and, you know, opaque, but that it can be as simple as, you know, singing a song to yourself in the shower or, you know, consciously making your favorite recipe on, you know, your grandmother's anniversary of her birthday. The rituals that we use to help us feel connected at that deep level are already all around us. And it's just about making them visible. Can you tell us what your definition or mm. definitions of a ritual are? Maybe how you define it and, you know, what separates a good ritual from a bad ritual? My favorite kind of definition of a ritual is that rituals are not here to make things different, but they're here to make things real. So it's not as if I'm ma waving mm. a magic wand and suddenly, right, like this, at least in my theological orientation, it's not like this bread now suddenly, you know, is the body of Jesus, for example, or like, but then it helps us become really present, right? Like it, ritual makes things real means that everyone is showing up. It means that we are all intentionally stepping into this, this kind of second world. We've mm. got the real world that we're always in. But then there's this kind of this world that's always just one step away from us, which is the world as it could be. And rituals kind of invite us into that place to really hold who we can be together in a shared moment. So that's my kind of poetic answer. Now, how do you recognize a ritual? For me, it's really about three things, practically. One is that you bring an intention to the physical action. So a habit is something that you just do every day, right? Like brushing your teeth. And it's great. Fantastic. I hope we're all doing it. But that doesn't make it a ritual, right? It's, it's, <laughs> Hygiene. <laughs> Very important right. habits, yes. Thumbs up, gold star. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you, you're bringing an intention. And, you know, you can turn a habit into a ritual by saying, you know, I, I want to brush my teeth in honor of my, you know, dentist grandfather or whatever. So you can take a habit and make it a ritual by bringing that intentionality. Mm. The second piece is that you pay attention during the ritual. So, you know, if you're taking your dog for a walk and you want to turn it into a reflective moment where you're really connecting with, you know, the changing scene seasons, for example. Uh, right now in Brooklyn, there's these beautiful flowering trees that I can see through my window. And, you know, if you want to bring your attention to it, you're not going to be listening to a podcast at the same time or checking Twitter. Mm. And then the third ingredient is that you repeat the practice. So that there's repetition, which is pretty self-explanatory. So if you're bringing an intention, paying attention and doing it repeatedly, that's when you have a good foundation for a ritual. And, you know, I use everyday examples as a way to illustrate that in an important way, because I think exactly like 
like you said, when we hear that mm. word ritual, often we think of very, very complex, you know, exotic things, maybe mm. especially particularly religious things that might not sit very comfortably. And so I really want to bring kind of ritual life into our homes, into our everyday, because that's where, you know, we spend most of our time. And I think it can really be a foundation of a, of a life of meaning when we do that. To drop the COVID yeah. question in here, uh, COVID-19, we're all at home and I, you're doing the same. You're living this live as, as we all are. And I'm wondering, have you brought any rituals into your life or do you recommend any rituals that you've heard yeah. of to folks listening right now, um, just to help with isolation or fear and anxiety or just, you know, the nature of being at home or working from home? Are there any that you've added into your life or seen that you want to mention? Yeah, I'll mention one that I've been practicing for about six years and that honestly feels like a lifesaver, especially now, which mm. is, you know, I'm the kind of person who just loves to scroll through the Twitter feed because it, you know, numbs all the feelings and it can entertain and distract. <laughs> and so for me, building a sort of a tech Sabbath ritual has been a really, really wonderful mm. thing. And what that looks like for me isn't just like shutting off my phone and like putting it away. On Friday night, really drawing on the Jewish Sabbath practice, on Friday night, I turn off my phone, turn off my laptop, I put them out of sight, which is really important for me. And then I light a little candle and I, I hold the candle and I look outside as it turns into dusk. And I sing myself this little Dutch song that I grew up with uh, going to summer camp. And the thing is, Bailey, like Aww. it really, I know it sounds really weird. And it on it, the first time I did it, I was like, I'm the crazy person, but it feels like going on vacation. Like it feels like I'm transported to a different place. And honestly, I'll be like, yay, it's Sabbath time. <laughs> like I'll be so happy. And I mentioned that specifically in this like COVID moment, because I think it's important that we give ourselves psychological breaks where we can just mm -hmm. take a moment and allow ourselves to step away from the just relentless onslaught of information and news. Um, really, it's kind of protecting myself against my worst instincts. So that's a practice that's been really, really wonderful. The other one for me, again, perhaps a little strange, but having a shower is one of the few things that feels the same in like pre-COVID world as it does now, right? Mm. Like everything else, you know, obviously I, you know, I used to work from home anyway, so it's not too different, but you know, I can't tell you what day it is right now. Like, you know, one thing just... <laughs> Every <laughs> exactly. day is a Sunday. Everything's closed. It's like, it's yeah. all Sunday. So, <laughs> like trying to have some, some rhythm within this kind of just endless sea of time has become just really mm. important to me. So one of the things that I like to do when I'm in the shower is what traditionally in the Christian context was called a memento mori, really a sort of yes. reminder of our mortality, which of course right now feels more present than ever. But I literally just say while I'm doing my stretches in the shower, you know, is to say, oh my gosh, so charming. <laughs> Sorry, keep well, going. I love your life. It's, it's very dull. What's going in it, Bailey? <laughs> it's, just, it's just me. But like, I just say to myself, like I might die today. I might die today. Yeah. And it feels wow. it feels Gosh. both scary and then it also feels like a relief because what a confrontation a, a momentary engagement with the reality of our mortality what it does is it brings into view what really matters and so it's a great yeah. reminder it's a very simple little ritual that you can do uh, you know just while you're having a shower putting on your moisturizer whatever it is just to engage with that fact for a second and then also let it go like you don't have to stay there right so that's another one that i found particularly helpful right now 
there's so many feelings and thoughts that when they exit just being trapped yeah. in our mind and become either writing on, on a page, being spoken to a friend, or physically yeah. expressed in some way, they become more real and also less scary yeah. or less obsessive. And I'm hearing in those two rituals, there's just an ability to take something that you may think in your mind, oh, That's I right. should do this, or I sh I'm reflecting on this, but that extra step of manifesting it in the That's physical right. world, bringing those two together is what makes it so, makes these rituals so special and yeah. profound and probably cathartic as well, I, I would imagine. Absolutely. You've hit on something really important about ritual, which is that traditionally ritual was there to make the invisible visible. So you're kind of bringing to light something, you know, think about a transition, right? Like a graduation. Think about a wedding, right? Like I'm putting this wedding ring on my finger to represent my commitment to you, right? Like it's making this invisible promise we've made one another visible to the outside world. And also, frankly, to myself, right? Sometimes you need that reminder, like, oh, I made those vows, right? Mm. And so using language to do the same thing is to, right, to make that transition visible, make it audible, is a really powerful thing. And I think one of the things that we've lost as, you know, more and more of us, especially younger generations, are less and less traditionally religious. One of the things that we've lost is a shared language to describe these kind of things, right? You can't just assume yes. that everyone knows uh, or even, you know, shares rituals, shares, you know, a meaning-making life. And so when we lose the words to describe these things, we honestly kind of suppress the experience because we don't have the words to describe it. So it's really powerful, yeah. exactly like you were saying, just to give it some language. And giving it language doesn't mean giving it power. It means returning the power to you. I want to shift gears a little bit now and talk to a community that you have built over the last five years. You do a sacred reading of Harry Potter <laughs> that is reading through the book chapter by chapter to learn from the text, to reflect on our lives, and to think about life's big questions as you describe it. Yeah. It started as just a few friends in Cambridge, and there are now, by my count on your website, which may be slightly inaccurate, 77 chapters from Oahu to Copenhagen. You have millions of people who tune into your podcast each month. I just wanted to ask you, you know, can you tell me about that motivation to read in community and how you got the group started, why you got the group started? Yeah, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's really a, a good illustration. As we've talked about ritual, one of the things that's dangerous, I think, with any practice is when it becomes too isolated. And so doing reading in community is a really wonderful way in which you can share and kind of expand the meaning that we're making of a text. So where this came from for me was, you know, as I said, I didn't grow up with any religion. And so once I was in divinity school, you have to take a couple of kind of standard classes. And there I am sitting in, in Hebrew Bible and New Testament. And I'm like, okay, it's interesting. Turns out the whole Hebrew Bible is actually about sex. Fascinating. <laughs> right? Like fun. I thought everything was about sex. Everything is about gender and power. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's keep moving. Keep moving. <laughs> That's why you're ahead of me and I have to go to school. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, you know, I was sitting there. I was like, well, this is interesting interesting, but like, it's kind of like an academic pursuit. Like this doesn't feel personally meaningful to me because this isn't a text that feels like it's mine. And I, then I just sat there thinking and I started to talk about mm. it with one particular professor. And she said, well, what kind of texts do you feel like belong to you? And, you know, I wasn't a great reader as a kid. I read every Agatha Christie book and mm. that was kind of about it. But the other books I always loved were, you know, kind of fantasy book, like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And I decided, well, what if I, you know, started to, to do that? So one January, 
I started, I invited friends to, you know, for the first seven nights of January to watch the first eight Harry Potter films and do a double bill on the final Sunday. And it was kind of like... An incredible feat of stamina, may yes. I just say. Yes, because they that aren't is, all great. That is a marathon, indeed. <laughs> I love Harry Potter, but dang, seven days. That's a lot. Commitment. But Keep it was going. The commitment. I mean, you pointed to it, Bailey. Commitment is one of the really important things with a practice, right? Like yeah. a ritual or mm-hmm. a reading practice is you've got to stick with it when it gets tricky. You, yeah. Like if you're really going to extract the juice, I always like to think of a cocktail, right? The best bits are at the bottom. Mm. You have to stick with it to really get to the to the juicy bits. And so, you know, we kind of traveled through the movies over those seven days. And I was like, there's something here. And then I was introduced to my, my co-founder, Vanessa Zoltan, who amazingly was reading Jane Eyre as a sacred text and running this discussion group with three other women. They would get together every Wednesday night and read a chapter and then ask questions about their own lives. So it wasn't a book club in that you're asking, you know, what is Rochester thinking about this? And what is Jane doing about that? What's going on in the plot? But it's asking questions about, you know, what can we learn about mental health from this scene, right? What can we learn about love and loss? Um, What's my experience of love and loss and how does it relate to the book? And I was just amazed by those conversations. And I said to Vanessa, like, this is really cool, but how about we do it with a book that more people enjoy? (laughs) (laughs) And so we started doing it in as an in-person class in Cambridge, as you said, uh, we had about 30 people over over nine months every week from seven till 8.30 on a Wednesday night. And it was lovely, you know, really formed a little congregation. People became housemates, best friends, fell in love, visited each other in the hospital, broke up, you know, all the things. But it needed to have about everyone contributing about 10 bucks every session for it to really be financially viable. And the average donation was four and a half dollars. So we couldn't run it again, but we thought, you know what, maybe this might work as a podcast. And so we were, we started it in hmm. 2016 and we're very lucky that it grew quickly because the Harry Potter fandom is an extraordinarily yeah. active, even now, you know, more than 20 years after the first publication, very active and also a very generous fan community. And so when we were able to help people already turning to these books in times of trouble, maybe after a breakup or the death of a loved one, people were actually already reading the books as a sacred text, but no one had really helped them to do it. So I think what we were able to offer was a way for folks to engage with the text in a new way by practicing, you know, Jewish and Christian reading practices that help you dig deeper into the text. And then suddenly we started to see after a few years, uh, local groups pop up and we were like, this is amazing. Let's invest in it. So we've had an amazing uh, local groups coordinator, Maggie Needham, who's been supporting community leaders all around the world who now now run their own reading groups and get together and pull out their copy of Harry Potter and talk about, you know, big questions in life using the Harry Potter books as a as a mirror, really, because that's what a secret text does. It, it's not there to instruct you. It's there to reflect life back to you so that you can see new things in your own life because what you see in the text. I read a beautiful description of what you're doing with this Harry Potter community. WBUR wrote, you and your partners are cautious to not promote a podcast community as opposed to giving others the opportunity to create community. And you take steps to not blur that boundary. Oh yeah, that's really important to me. I get so frustrated and we've talked about this, like the kind of greenwashing or the community washing that's happening with that particular word community. You know, we're also 
hungry for it, so it makes sense that we're hearing that word more and more. But so often I hear the word community used in situations that don't merit yes, it. Yeah. And sometimes it happens, you know, innocently, like, oh, at this weekend retreat, I really feel like we've built a community. You know, I understand that. But you're also seeing in branding where more and more companies are selling us community without really giving us the experience. So I'm very conscious that we always talk about a listening community, right? Like that's the thing that we're sharing. And then you're at the micro level actually seeing real community where people are bringing each other soup and lending each other money and, you know, the kind of things that you that you would expect to see in a real community. Why is not blurring that boundary important to you? Is this like, a, ask <laughs> yeah. the even more obvious question. I can sense that that really matters to you. Why? <laughs> Why are you so angry about this, Casper? <laughs> well, I feel there's always been a very complex relationship between capitalism and community. It's very easy to point a sort of purist picture about, well, this is spiritual and that's the marketplace. And that's just not true. Money and religion have always been intertwined, just as power and religion have always been intertwined. And so to, you know, to critique, for example, private companies that are doing spiritual or community things, I think is unhelpful because it just reflects a tradition that's been ongoing for a long time. However, on the other hand, you know, a community's priorities should not be inherently financial. For me, that's just really important because then you start to look at people for what they're worth in terms of their productivity or, or their value rather than the inherent worthiness of them just being alive. And so for me, it's important to protect that line and say, you know, what we're doing here is wonderful. And, you know, we might be, people feel like by listening to me, they might know a lot about me. And that's lovely, right? I, I do that with other podcasts, you know, the Slate Culture Gap Fest and the Tennis Podcast. I love those guys, right? I feel like they, like I'm their best friend, um, but we're not. You know, and, yeah. and so that's really important to kind of to maintain that boundary. And I think some of that maybe comes from my my training in divinity school, where you do learn a lot about community leadership, you know, and, and spiritual leadership, where if you are a congregational leader, maybe a rabbi or a priest or a minister, you're both of the community, but also separate from it. And because you have additional responsibilities and the community is not the place for you to bring your problems, right? You're there to shepherd the community. So I think that thinking about boundaries probably comes a little bit also from my from my school training. How, how have you thought or what are some decisions you've made that have helped you not blur that boundary for this Harry Potter community that is listening to your podcast and probably feeling quite close to you, but ideally finding most of their meaning and support from people that they are more intimately connected to? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. One of the things that we do in every episode is we include a voicemail from a listener. And on the one hand, it's a way of making sure we're not getting too small-minded about the text, right? It's not just Vanessa and I, right? There's always another voice that we're bringing in. Um, but we're also very clear that, you know, when people are looking to us directly, perhaps, you know, for counseling or, you know, a lot of people are struggling sometimes with mental health, struggling with loss or grief, um, that we don't fulfill that uh, kind of chaplain role unless it's appropriate. So we're always encouraging people to look towards their local support systems, towards the local groups that are now all around the world, and to not kind of, it's nice to be wanted, right? But it's not always the right thing to fulfill that want. And the other thing that when we when we see someone in the media, or maybe we see their picture or listen to their voice, we project a lot onto them. And so, you know, it, you might get lovely praise, like people say, you know, listening to this podcast really got me through a tough time. You know, I love you guys. And it's very easy to be like, oh, yeah, I'm so great. <laughs> you know, like, I like that. It feels really good. You know, one of my love languages is words of affirmation. So I'm absolutely. All in on that. <laughs> That's why we host podcasts. Uh, it's like, you're talking about. <laughs> 
Feel and your let brother. me just say, Bailey, how much I think you are fantastic. Aww, <laughs> love it. I'm like crying over here. <laughs> but it's really important when you're in that kind of community leadership role, if you're going to take that seriously, then you have to take all of the criticism and the once every few uh, tens of reviews, a, a nasty review or something. You have to take that seriously. So one of the practices that Vanessa and I have is to really just remind each other our friendship is the thing that's most real about the whole podcast, right? Like that's at the heart of it. And to try and not get sucked into people's perceptions of us or, you know, whether they're negative, honestly, much more often whether they're positive, because if you believe the nice stuff, you have to believe the not nice stuff. And it's better to just stay grounded in reality. So that's kind of become a practice for us to just be like, hello, reality check, you smell, you know, (laughs) 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 just to bring each other back to uh, just a reality. (laughs) I love that. I read the guide for how to start your own Harry Potter reading, sacred reading group. And the, I think anyone who reads this guide would notice that there's an opening orienting ritual, then there's intimate personal sharing, which I would perhaps call another ritual, (laughs) then a three minute recap of the reading, plus or minus, followed by these instructions. Number eight, do a spiritual practice. Number nine, do another spiritual practice. And number 10, do a final ritual. I'm curious about how how you have gotten to the point where you recommend so much practice and ritual. So could you, could you just tell us about the sort of thoughts behind creating that guide with such, so many baked in moments of meaning? The gatherings that happen on the local level are very much mirroring what we do on the podcast. So listeners will be very, very familiar with a number of elements of what we're recommending folks do together. So, you know, what, what a spiritual practice looks like for us when we're engaging a text is a simple as, for example, doing a, an Ignatian imagination. St. Ignatius of Loyola, great Catholic spiritual teacher, many centuries ago, um, taught a wonderful practice of imagining yourself into the gospel stories. So you're not just listening to the story, but you're trying to imagine yourself as one of the characters. And maybe, you know, you're feeling the sea wind and you feel the saltiness in your nostrils. And, you know, you're, re- you're really getting a sensory experience. And so we do the same wow. with Harry Potter. I, you know, I, I'll read maybe two pages and we'll invite people to imagine themselves into one of the characters. And it's incredible what a different perspective that can give you. So it's really, it's an exercise in empathy. That's one of the, the kind of textual practices that we'll ask to do. But those kind of beginning and, and ending rituals that we do is just a way of making this time separate from everyday chit chat. We love it that our local groups get together. You know, they're hanging out online right now. They've got Discord channels. They've got Facebook groups. They've got all the different things that you'd expect to see. And they get together for drinks and celebrate birthdays and, you know, all of the things that happen in community life. But this time, is set aside to do the kind of the spiritual practices. This is time set out of time. And so we're really intentional about marking the beginning and marking the end so that you know when to show up with that kind of intentionality, full of attention and kind of purpose and when to be like, oh, you know, how how was the match? You know, how's your sister doing? Like all of that kind of chit chat. Because it's hard, I think, sometimes to move from that everyday lovely but kind of surface level conversation to these deeper meaning-oriented conversations that can happen when we study a text. We need like a transition and a permission to That's get right. there. We spoke to a fitness instructor once and he talked about how important the the tone of his voice is and how when he starts the class, changing that tone, changing that intensity and doing warm-ups are so important to get people where you want them to go. And I'm sure that's something that you've seen <laughs> okay. over and over and over again. I have to tell you one quick story because this is why I don't know how to drive Bailey. Because Ooh. that vocal change 
can also be done so badly. <laughs> I had a driving teacher when I was 17. I was learning how to drive. And, you know, he'd be normal oh, no. chit-chat, chit-chat. And once we got in the car, he had this like squeaky, icky leather jacket. And then he would put on his teacher voice. And it would be, <laughs> you know, I just like broke out in hives every time I heard it. Oh, and you, no. <laughs> you see this in churches too, right? Like people will yeah. subtly put on their preacher voice. And I don't know why I'm American that I'm doing that. But it's... <laughs> <laughs> Studying too many American communities, probably. <laughs> but it's just one of those things that if you're not careful, like they do have to be authentic expressions, right? Like yeah. it can't mm. be too fake because then it, it doesn't, you know, we're always presenting a character and I don't want to deny that. But at the same time, you've got to be careful with that kind of vocal shift because it, it can be, I don't know, it, at least for me, it can really turn me off. <laughs> People need to trust the guide exactly. if they're going to make that transition. That's right. Can you tell me about one of the surprises, maybe any practices or rituals that you've seen oh, yeah. people come up with, remix, make up themselves that you've thought, you know, as a student of these things was really delightful or surprising? It's been extraordinary. I mean, what I love about our listening community is a lot of folks, educators, librarians, mm. or in Harry Potter language, we've got a lot of Ravenclaws that listen. <laughs> you know, it's a real mix of Hufflepuffs and Ravenclaws. But it's been wonderful to see a lot of teachers adapt these kind of classic, you know, centuries or, or millennia old reading practices for the classroom as a way for students to engage with text. That's been really wonderful. But my favorite has been to see how families are using sacred reading. Hmm. So we've heard so many folks, maybe if they've got a long drive, they'll listen to an episode and then have a conversation as a family, you know, parents with kids in a way that usually they'd never be able to have. Because, and this is true for anyone who uses a text, you're kind of using the text as a proxy to talk about yourself. So often it allows us to explore questions together that might feel a little sensitive or, or strange to talk about, you know, directly. We've seen you know, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law get on the phone every Sunday night to do their sacred readings together. Um, couples who both love Harry Potter get to have a, an intentional conversation. So for me, it's been amazing to see how the podcast is kind of a permission giver for people to translate these practices into into their life, into a way that really you mm. know serves their their experience of connecting with the people they love. And for me, that's that's kind of what it's all about. I want to ask you, as someone who has done research into all stripes of communities, is there anything that being the chaplain, perhaps, of the Harry Potter community <laughs> has taught you about community? Like any surprises, any lessons that you think you wouldn't have learned unless you'd been a true, true practitioner in organizing such a big community? Yeah, I mean, it's been a great privilege because in my day job, kind of both writing the How We Gather report and now my work at Sacred Design Lab, we're thinking a lot about the macro, thinking about trends in American religion, American social connection, the increase in rates of loneliness, things like that. And then to experience it very firsthand in a micro community like the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listening community, it's striking, first of all, how much the big trends make sense. You know, I think so many of us are hungry for connection. I think there's a real, a real suspicion and hesitancy about religious life for a lot of us, especially those who, who are not religious. So those trends have really held up to be very true. What's been wonderful for me is just a reminder that like, this is literally what we're wired for. It's not rocket science. Like it's amazing and it's fantastic that we, you know, you and I and so many others who listen to this podcast spend so many hours thinking about like structuring community and how do you map out leadership roles and what's the, you know, the way to think about the perfect community. But inherently what I found is that people know how to be together and really what they're just waiting for is an invitation to do it. So one of the biggest things I think about my work and, and I hope my book can do is to give 
give people a sense of spiritual permission to say to people, you know, actually, we have what we need to do the things that we want to do to experience a life that we want to live. And so I think, you know, for anyone who feels like, oh, I want more community in my life, just give people permission. For me, that's expressed maybe best with singing. It's one of the things that so many of us feel very shy about. You know, some of us were really shamed as kids, especially for singing out of tune or whatever. But once people feel like, you know, we're just going to go for it, let's go. It's such a joyful thing. And it just needs that first person to just go out and do it while being invitational, accessible and inviting other people in. And so I think that's my biggest takeaway is like, just do it. The combination, like just do it, there's two things in there, which is the invitation. And then for me, the biggest learning has just been commitment, yeah. which yep. sounds so silly, but... Oh, no, it's real. I mean, there's seven so Harry Potter real. books and there's a lot of podcast episodes. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely true. And I sometimes think, you know, a community leader is like a someone who opens a cafe door every day. That's right. And your regulars may not come every day. They might miss a day or two, but they know that the door is going to be open yes. for them. Yes. And they know that something is there for them and they can go. And I think that combination of, you know, people just internalizing, give people permission, give them an invite and then keep doing it. Don't try to like one and done something, make it a big marketing type event where you're counting the number of people in the room. Just stick with it. And I think that's something that seems like in your DNA, you've been able to commit to these rituals in your own life or this community and these practices. (laughs) But I think that's something that has been a very big learning for me is the need need to offer structure and consistency within your organizing efforts if you want them to be meaningful. That's right. That's right. And I mean, I'm laughing to myself because as a child, I was teased relentlessly, not teased, but it was pointed out to me by my parents that I often did things but did not follow through. Like I'm great at starting things, but not great at continuing. And that honestly, it's still true. It's still true. So it takes real effort (laughs) to do that commitment. I really don't want to say it's easy. But, and this is for me, one of the big takeaways from really a decade of work now on these questions is I really never start anything alone because I can't trust myself to stay that committed. Yeah. You know, whether it's been the podcast with Vanessa and now Ariana, our amazing executive producer, or the work with Angie Thurston on, on how we gather. I just know my work will always be better when I'm doing it in collaboration with someone else and that they will help me through a tough time and I'll help them. And you end up, it's not just like, it's more than the sum of its parts, right? It's not just their skills plus my skills equal more skills. It's like something new is unlocked when you're collaborating collaborating at that kind of soul level. And so that has been a real, real important takeaway to be able to maintain that commitment. You're facing releasing a book, which is a big deal. And (laughs) it's a very big moment, especially when it's something that is so connected to your personal passions and interests. And I imagine there are people listening to this podcast that will want to show up for you or support Mm. you or connect with you as they've read the book or just as the book's coming out. And, you know, is there any way that people who really are passionate about you and your work can help with this book launch or can help with that upcoming moment? I know, especially we're in a strange time with whether or not we can gather in person, traditional book launches, but how can people be there for you and be there for the book that's coming out soon? Oh, Bailey, that's very generous. Well, thank you. The first thing I want to say is really that the point of the book is that it helps people live a life of more meaning and connection. So the first thing people can do is is try out some of the, you know, the practices and, and do a little ritual inventory of their lives. And, you know, that's really the goal. Um, but to support the book, absolutely, you know, if it's possible, if the CDC uh, suggests it's, it's uh, possible, we're going to be planning a 20-city tour across the US in July. Now, if we can't travel, we'll be doing those online. And so if you want to taste 
least of the the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text work uh, together with the book, uh, The Power of Ritual, then definitely check out caspertk.com and you'll see all the different cities that we're that we'll be going to there. But the other thing that I'll say is I've really enjoyed doing some online workshops, helping people kind of map out their ritual year, um, doing singing together while we're all stuck inside. And so just keep up to date with uh, what I'm doing and where the book is going in the world. Definitely sign up for my newsletter, which again is on caspertk.com. And uh, you'll hear about all the wonderful things you can do and invite other people to and uh, yeah, hopefully enrich some of the some of the more drab moments that we're all experiencing. <laughs> and pro tip, isn't your husband an opera singer? He's a professional singer of some sort. Yeah, yeah. He trained as an opera singer. He's now a garden designer. So his creativity wow. knows no ends. I know. So get on that Zoom singing <laughs> opportunity, everyone. This yeah. is no joke. Way to be upstaged by your husband, right? Like, geez. <laughs> well, Casper, thank you so much for your time. It's so delightful to speak with you and just, you know, dig into your brain and see everything that you know about this space and world. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And to everyone, The Power of Ritual is coming out. What's the uh, pub date, Casper? June 23rd. Yeah, available Great. in all your local bookstores as well, of course, on the uh, as the online ones. And Bailey, if I may, I just want to sell celebrate you for the amazing work that you've done um, with Kevin and the whole team. You know, I when I saw Get Together, you know, the book the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And I just love the way that you lift up community leaders where, you know, so many people when they do this work don't really know if it's like a real thing. And I think you are just such a, it's such a blessing that you offer us all to lift up the amazing work that's happening around the country and around the world. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. So thank you. Thank you. This work is work that, you know, our society today, I think, doesn't elevate yeah, that's right. so much. And so I just want for people that are looking for inspiration, like I was years ago, I hope that people can find it through this podcast, can find those stories that otherwise they couldn't see. Done and done. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, thank you so much, Casper. If you want to connect with Casper, visit his website, Casper TK, to join his newsletter or pre-order his book. And be sure to follow him on Twitter at CasperTK. You can find out how to get involved with Harry Potter and the Sacred Text at HarryPotterSacredText.com. To learn more about us, people and company, and the ways we work with organizations to make smarter bets with their community building investments, visit our website, PeopleAnd.Company. Also, our book is on Amazon. GetTogetherBook.com will take you right there. It's full of stories and learnings from conversations with community leaders like this one with Casper. Oh, and last thing, if you don't mind, review this podcast and subscribe. It really helps more people find the podcast. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.